certainly a, a special privilege to have to unfold this particular text and John's version of uh, the events of this great day. But I've got to say, this is not how I would choreograph the most important historical fact that uh, has ever occurred in human history. I mean, I would not leave these events to any chance. I would have had my events managers plan this out minute by minute. In fact, I would have had a lot more fanfare. I've had the right people there, and I would have left the resurrection story in the hands of rank amateurs. But that's what Jesus does. And by the time we get down to the end of this story, I think we'll see why. This story we're going to look through just in four panels, <clears throat> three sightings of the risen Jesus, is really about how you and I come to be sitting here today. These things are the seeds from which all of Christendom, in fact all of Western civilization, uh, has been constructed. These events, no small things. The story begins with uh, Mary Magdalene coming to a a tomb, a tomb she knew where it was. The, the uh, onlookers had seen Jesus' body placed there only a couple of days ago. And she comes and, and to her horror, she can see a bare slab where his body was and she was going to continue the interrupted preparations that go with burial. Now, the other Gospels tell us the, the stone had been rolled against the uh, tomb, so it must have been a shock to see this tomb stone had been rolled away. Tons of rock had been moved. This, she immediately jumps to the conclusion, is sacrilege. Someone has done a terrible thing. I mean, even if you don't like the person, even if they're a complete uh, social pariah, they still deserve to be left to rest. This is desecration. It was a very serious offence in her world and our world. And so she can't understand it, but she's pretty sure someone has done some foul deed. And so she runs back to where the disciples are, and later on we discover that they're actually in hiding. They're keeping their heads down. Two of the disciples decide to venture out at this early hour <clears throat> Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved, who happens to be John, the writer, and they run because they must have thought some degree of credibility in Mary's words. And they get to the tomb and Peter finally gets there late, but he goes right in, whereas John just peeks and John can see that there's nothing on, no body lying on the slab. And, and Peter goes in and, and then John follows in. And what they see there is forensically fascinating because the, the woman was right, the body is gone, but they have to rule out certain things. This simple set of events rules out later that the people who see Jesus are having a hallucination. When you're going to have a hallucination, you don't go and prepare the props beforehand. You have no control over it, it meets you. And this could not have been a ghost that is seen later. If it was a ghost, the body would have been there. 
And this could not have been robbery unless those robbery, robbers were particularly OCD because they'd unwrapped the body. <laughs> and then neatly, you can just imagine the robbery team saying, <clears throat> you know, we can't leave this place a mess, now roll up the bandage, anti-clockwise, come on. <laughs> of course not. This can't be a robbery. They would have been, if it was robbery, they would have been out like a shot. All we know is that the story of the resurrection begins here, but this is not the reason why we believe in the resurrection. It goes part of the way. It is necessary data, but it is not sufficient. John saw, and we read, and he believed. But immediately, if we're thinking that John had some sort of theophany and he understood everything, all he believed was Mary. <laughs> yes, the woman was right, the body is gone. <laughs> she isn't delusional. That's what John believes. Because it, we're told that right at that point that they didn't understand the scripture. We're not sure what scripture John is referring to. Isaiah 53, Psalm 16, some of these scriptures. That he must rise from the dead. They hadn't seen that. And this is why they simply go back to their homes. They keep their heads down. It's best not to be seen and again recognised as one of his crew. Now Mary comes along at some time during this and, and she is not relieved at all and she bursts into tears. I mean, this is adding insult to injury, this sacrilege. And she looks in... And this is absolutely fascinating. She now sees what others couldn't have seen because it's just happened. She sees the slab, probably with a red stain on it, and an angel at either end. Fascinating. And what does she say? Does it make any sense to her? <clears throat> She's weeping, and the angel asks, asks her, Women, woman, why are you weeping? And in the text, the emphasis is on the word you. It's like, why are you of all people weeping? And the same question is asked a minute later. And she comes out with her theory, they have taken his body and I don't know where they've laid him. She comes to do her homage and there she cannot perform her duty. Now, I love this. This is so much like Jesus. If you looked at other passages in John's Gospel, the Lord, he is fascinated with orchestration of prophetic messages. He likes to develop his own stage props. The wedding at Cana, he actually sees the wedding is actually like a picture of the Sanhedrin meeting. Look at it sometime. Here, he has set this up just for Mary. And what does it look like? What should it remind you of? Where have you seen a slab, a stain, and two angels? The Holy of Holies in the temple. And why does the Lord wait till the other disciples have gone? Because he wants to speak this word of assurance to Mary. 
because she was the one of all the people at the party a week ago, remember in Bethany? She was the one who came in with the vial and anointed him and poured it all over him. She anointed his body for burial. She and Jesus were on the same page. And so Jesus deliberately singles her out that he will explain this strange event just for her. He is saying something that the writer of Hebrews picks up on that we don't have we have a high priest of the good things that have come and he didn't enter he entered through the greater and more perfect tent not the one made with hands you see what Jesus is saying is that the holy of holies that Israel has depended upon to have access with God for a couple of thousand years this temple was modeled on this event not the other way around God could give the architecture of the temple to Moses and Aaron because he knew what it was speaking about, about this event. This is where the holy things have happened. This is the more perfect tent. This is the reality. The temple was the shadow. And that's what she is is saying to Mary. You were right all the way along. But Mary doesn't get the symbolism, even though Jesus prepared it just for her. And she turns and she sees probably just his silhouette and her eyes are full of tears. And she is still locked on to the sacrilege story. And she cannot conceive that there's anything different. And she thinks, and this is amazing, it's humorous, isn't it? She thinks Jesus, the Lord of glory, is the gardener. Now, that might elevate the vocation of gardening, but it's, it's hilarious. And Jesus himself says, Now, Mary, why are you, of all people, weeping? Has no impact on her. And she spits out because she is furious. She is now worked up. And she expects that somewhere around this garden there will be some shed with a body in it. And she's saying, well, you know, you've been out pulling your weeds and sweeping up and where have you put the body? Come on, I'll take it. Leave it to me. Now, I don't know how she expects she's going to lug home a body of a fully grown Galilean, but she wants it. Give it to me. It's no use to you. You Don't you like her spirit? If only her uh, theological sensitivity matched that uh, same zeal. Right then, the Lord does something. Mary. And she almost gets whiplash as she turns and suddenly recognizes her Lord. And it's fascinating, she spills out the word Rabunai, the Aramaic form of rabbi, evidently. And she goes over, and you can just imagine, she grips hold of him. Other gospels say she grabbed hold of his feet. And uh, Jesus has got to basically shake himself loose of this woman. She can't believe what she has found here. It's the same old for Jesus. And Jesus says to her these interesting words. He says, stop clinging to me. Not just, you know, whatever you do, don't touch me. It's, it's you know, let me go. That's what he's saying. Give a guy a break. (laughs) Just give me some space here, Mary. You see, 
this is not the end of the story because I am ascending to my father. This is where he's going. It's the midpoint. Don't cling to me for I haven't yet ascended to the father. But go and tell my, my brothers. That's the first time he's ever used that phrase. Go and tell my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and to your God. You see, what Jesus is saying here is that Mary, it's not the same old, same old. His ministry of humiliation that has been spelt out so well through the service and the song so far is about to be the ministry of glorification as he ascends. This is his exodus. And this exodus, his bodily absence, will mean a new paradigm for those who are his brethren. Now Mary has just basically a view. She hasn't really thought this through. She wants to hold Jesus there. She has sort of like the Greek mystery play view. It's like Groundhog Day that, you know, from now on he's proven that, you know, he can, he can stick it up the authorities and they can chase him and even if they catch him and kill him, he'll come back. You know, it's going to be... That's the future. More of the same. And he's saying, no, this is a complete breach, a new paradigm. Mark II humanity is about to break in because I ascend to the Father. And go and tell the boys that. Well, what happens is that uh, uh, <clears throat> Mary is just enamored with her experience. She's enamored with the miraculous, but she doesn't bear the message that Jesus sent to her. If, if this is where the story ended, folks, you and I wouldn't be sitting here today. At best, we'd be people who believe that Strange things can happen, but we'd have no understanding of the ministry of Jesus if left to Mary. Now, <clears throat> on the evening of the first day of the week, she goes and she tells them that uh, she has seen the Lord. And I don't think they're that impressed. They're putting it down to some sort of hysteria. She's got the vapors, I don't know. But they're not really worked up and they've already had one day of, uh, you know, <clears throat> spectre chasing. They're not going to get out and risk things again. They're keeping their heads down. And Mary basically just says, um, I've seen the Lord. And, um, yeah, and really the sense of the text is, I've seen the Lord and he, he said some nice things about fathers and sons and that stuff. But I've seen the Lord. <laughs> it's her experience is all that really matters to her. And she doesn't take the message well we don't know what the disciples were talking about that night but as they're muttering wondering why what has happened to the body maybe and they're talking their theories back and forth another voice joins the conversation and you know <coughs> there he is and it's fascinating what Jesus says to them he begins with a salutation sandwich he says, my peace I give to you. And then he shows them his scars and he shows them his side. And then he says the same thing again. The other side of the sandwich. My peace I give to you. 
And effectively, it's another prophetic symbolised message where he's basically saying the peace that Israel longed for, the shalom of God is here. How is it here? By virtue of my wounds. The peace has been brought in. And now I present that to you. Jesus has had to come along finally and deliver his own mail, present his own message, because otherwise the message never would have been heard. And this is the message that man and God can be at peace because God has suffered the plight of the sinner before God. And then he assigns three tasks to these people. He assigns three tasks. First of all, they're given a new message. Now, that's a big trust. And he says to these these, uh, disciples, he says, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. Just let that rest on you. Now, I can understand God deciding to resolve the issues of sin and forgiveness and atonement because he is so wonderful. There is no length to which he will, no depth to which he will stoop, no length to which he will go to reconcile his creatures to himself. But to then say, now all that I have done is being put into your account and you are going to fill my boots these guys the future of the whole world sits in those shoes but God thinks it'll be fine they haven't really been impressive up till now they don't remember a thing he teaches them and they're not exactly loyal when the heat gets turned up but he does he entrusts this ministry which is a ministry for the whole world. This is the beginning of world mission. And right there, he entrusts that to these people. I feel like I might have a bit of hope when I read about that. And then he breathes on them and says, receive the spirit. Now, some people have said, oh, this is John's version of the Pentecost story. Nonsense. It's another enacted prophecy. As John 16 says, Jesus said, you know, the spirit can't come until I leave. So the spirit didn't come here. But what is this like? What does it remind you of? God breathing on someone. Where has that happened before? Creation. And what Jesus is doing is enacting another symbolic prophecy. He is saying, you guys are the new paradigm, Adam. You are the new creation, Adam's family. You know, the last paradigm, the prototype, it was a failure. But this time we're going to get it right because I breathe my breath on you afresh. The word for spirit means breath, the breath of God. And he's signaling them out as the first fruits who taste The new creation. We are the new message. We have a new message. We are the new humanity. And then you'd think that would be enough. But then he says this remarkable thing about sin. 
you know, if you forgive sins, they're forgiven. If you retain them, they're... Ret- okay, why talk about morality right now? <laughs> and there's many people in the church and many parts of the church who would love to have the first bit but not that third bit as part of the gospel obligation. But you see, if we are the new creation, if this is the new creation, God's idea of creation is not just to create something out of nothing. It's not just to make molecules and quarks and phases and quasars or whatever. But it's to also, his creation is hitched on the motherboard of his law. God does not leave humanity up to chance and just say like the social constructionists or the liberal theologians whatever you think is a good thing as long as you love him no he's saying there are standards here and you neglect the moral law of God and the consequences are just as severe as if you neglect the law of gravity try doing that for a day it's just as disastrous as neglecting the law of Christ There is still an imperative from God. There is still a proper way to live in God's universe. The God who made the universe, the God who makes the new humanity, knows how this new humanity runs. It runs on very holy fuel. And the disciples are given the obligation of telling people that. We are not living in their footprints if we neglect that. It implies that the church that follows them will live a life in tension. You're never going to be popular if you point out that God has standards and that the world is out of sync with those standards, that there is a law of Christ. One person said it so well years ago, we're against the world because we're for the world. Because you love the world and you know that God's law is made for the world so we spell it out to the world that's always part of the church's obligation but then we come to our last panel and we read that Thomas eight days later we don't know where he was that night when Jesus appeared eight days later and he must have been separate Because it's only now that he's finding out from the disciples about this, that not only was the grave empty, not only did Mary see him, but we saw the Lord and we testify that this Lord lives. And and Thomas, now he's made of pretty stern stuff. He's what you'd call an emotionally differentiated personality. And uh, he, he, he's the sort of person that the rest of the room can be losing their heads, but he's not going to lose his. He wants hard data. Good. And so he's saying, look, unless I see, because he, he, he saw the last of Jesus, and he knows there was a hole on the side, there were holes in the hands and feet. Unless I see all that data, I'm not going to believe. Don't just put me on an emotional roller coaster of the belief in the supernatural here. I want the data. And somehow someone was eavesdropping that conversation. And no sooner are the words out of his mouth than all of a sudden he hears the voice of Christ. Peace be with you. 
same words that he'd said the Lord had said to the disciple. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put your out your hand. Put out your hand, place it in my side. Knock yourself out, Tom. Go for broke. Thomas doesn't take up the invitation. He is polaxed in his awareness of the presence of the holy. And he still manages to spit out one of the most profound bits of theology. And in the first edition of this book, this is the last words that a human being says. He says, my Lord, my God. He got it dead right. This one has ownership rights over him. This one is his commander. He is the one who obeys. And this one is his maker. He is the maid. He gets it right. That's the nature of what a Christian is. A Christian is not some person who believes in the existence of supernature. It's not even a person who believes in Christmas and Easter. It's a person who says to their God, my Lord, take the reins. My God, you deserve them. That's the nature of the Christian. I love that little passage that it reminds me of Jesus' own words only a few months earlier where he says, all that God has given me, I will lose not one. He could have left it up to the boys to tell Thomas, but he comes and the Thomas might have the personal experience that the rest of them have. And then Jesus says this interesting thing in response to Thomas's prayer. And this is important for us. And he says, have you believed because you've seen me? You think that's something? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Now, we could just skip over that as if it's sort of greeting card language and Jesus is just saying nice stuff. But this is an effective word. At this moment, Jesus sets in train an unsinkable formula for the reclamation of all of humanity, if only they will have it. He says, did you notice? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. What Jesus is doing is he's putting a special confirmation on the simplicity of faith. Real faith needs no proof. Real faith needs no supplement. Real faith does not need to have signs and wonders and miracles to prove it. Real faith does not need clincher arguments to knock the brain cells around. Real faith just knows they have been addressed by God and gives their life in response that's real faith the proof of the blessing that Jesus had this night is you you are sitting here because at some point in time I hope your hearts were strangely warmed by a compelling invitation that you knew somehow or other came from another plane of reality and that you were compelled to bow the knee That happened because of this sentence that night. Blessed, blessed, it's not just a wish list, it's an effective word. Blessed are you who have believed without seeing. 
we often worry about how we're going to reach the world if they don't see Jesus like these guys saw Jesus. Well, he's taken care of that. How are we going to reach the world unless we have real professionalism and communication devices and philosophers who can take down any argument? Oh, it doesn't depend on that. Here, I have this profound theological phrase. I worked it out myself, and you can borrow it. I put it like this. Do you know what? The work of God is the work of God. Think about that. God himself is capable to reach and convince any human heart. Apostle Paul puts it even better. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. It is God's active power saving, is what he's saying. And that's how come you and I are here. And that's how come, do you realize, Freeway Baptist, that you, you're a bunch of dynamite sticks waiting to go off. You are living testimony to the fact that the Jesus that walked this world sits on a throne in another plane and his will will come about. He gets his way and history is heading towards him. That is what you are. You know, all of us are headed for a particular door. Each one of us here. How we will, what that will look like is an entirely different matter for, for, for you and for I. We don't know that. But a day and an hour and a minute and a moment will come when you and I will lay our heads on our pillows for the last time. You might be surrounded by family and friends. You might be totally isolated. But you will be there as the things of the world grow strangely dim. As the night then turns to day, I can promise you the next thing you'll hear will be your own name summoned by this same one. And you will recognise him not as some gardener you will identify those wounds which he decides to wear eternally. The wounds we inflicted are his badges of glory. When he calls, you have the appropriate liturgy. My Lord and my God. Maybe you've never responded to that call. If you've never made your peace with this Jesus, there is no more appropriate time than on this day of all days to take that invitation and to make that same response. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our blessed Lord and God, we gather here in this place today because you have called us and in calling us you have gathered us 
and you've inspired our hearts and your spirit has borne witness within them that Jesus Christ is our Lord and the world's God. Receive the gratitude of our hearts and we look forward to that day when we will see you face to face but we thank you that by your spirit you are not absent. Hear our words of our hearts as we give ourselves again to you in worship this day. Amen.